Hi there, folks. I'm back with another episode of Serve the People, a story. Uh, and today with me is a good old friend of mine and fellow classmate, uh, Benjamin Branton. Do you Hello. mind yourself? I'm Ben, and I go to school every once in a while, and me and Connor share similar political beliefs, so. So, yeah, we should probably have a pretty fun time with this. So... I guess we're just going to go ahead and get started with it. So to sort of lay the ground for where we are now, China, after years and years back into like the mid 19th century, was undergoing a era of political turmoil, dealing with foreign affairs, uh, foreign aggression, imperialism from Europe and abroad, as well as internal conflict, such as the Taiping Rebellion, they, um, and then eventually the Boxer Rebellion and the Warlord Era, which came right before the Chinese Civil War. Um, and out of all of this, after a long history of uh, very violent and very sort of, um, I guess you could say, uh, fluidity came out the other side was the Nationalist Party, the Kuomintang, which was led by Chiang Kai-shek. And after the near unification of China, they betrayed, I guess you could say, their communist allies, which resulted in the beginning of the Chinese Civil War that was fought between the Communist Party of China and the Chinese National Party, as well as the National Revolutionary Army, led by Chiang Kai-shek and the Communist Party that would eventually be led by Mao Zedong. So at the beginning of the Civil War, most of the fighting was basically just guerrilla warfare that was commenced by the communists. And what they would do is basically they would just move all the time and if they were able to move all the time then the nationalists were not uh, able to encircle them destroy them um, it was a very rough time for the communist party uh, and during this time is the form with the, uh, a formation within the communist party would lead to the eventual leadership of Mao Zedong and the developments of Mao Zedong, such as the concept of a protracted people's war, um, his concepts of insurgency and how to wage a communist revolution in a prolonged sense against okay, yeah. a nationalist, capitalist, imperialist power. And so things were looking really rough. And in the last episode, we talked about what was called the Long March, which eventually the communists could not run, could not run anymore, and the nationalists and the National Revolutionary Army, aka the NRA, had fully encircled the communists. And whenever this happened, they made a suicidal run for it. Basically, they got the H E double hockey sticks out of Dodge. And in the process, lost a huge chunk, about 50% of their entire fighting force. 
and a what was called the long march which was essentially a very long reach retreat from place to place and mm. so around the time of 1937 or so uh they were able to sort of finally land themselves and to sort of gain a little bit of footing but they were extremely weak however there was on the horizon, I guess you could say, a rising sun. Hmm. Well, so Japan had been very interested in Chinese resources, Chinese territory for a long time at this point. Uh, very specifically, uh, the first Sino-Japanese War, which they fought over um, territory in Korea and certain places in Manchuria. Um, ever since that war, the Japanese had exerted a large amount of influence over China, at this point, the Republic of China. They had huge interests in uh, the territory of Manchuria, which was in northern China. And the tensions between the Nationalist Army and the Japanese uh, Empire was heavily uh, heating up and eventually all of this led to what was called the Mukden incident okay now I shouldn't say lead up to because this is actually extremely silly so basically what happened was a a, uh, a unit of Chinese soldiers they planted a uh, a small amount of explosives, some dynamite on a railway, and and this, and they set it off. It did not it did not uh, destroy the railway like they were anticipating it to, which would have led any train to cut to uh, come by, which they were expecting a train to come by in a couple of minutes. The train still passed over it, the railway that they. Uh, bombed but thing is the reason why they did this is they wanted to blame the explosion on uh, Chinese uh, militants within Manchuria oh. and yeah and so using this small incident they use that to justify um, to justify an a full scale invasion of Manchuria one, one small explosion. They they literally said uh, some militants, they tried to blow up a railway. We're going to invade like a huge portion of your country. Mm. Yeah, so in September of 1930 and 1931, the Japanese military had already invaded Manchuria. Mm -hmm. um, and so, wait, excuse me. Uh, that's September of 1937. In 1937, the Japanese Imperial Military invaded Manchuria. Uh, some people consider this date to be the beginning of the Second Civil, uh, excuse me, the uh, Second World War. And I, I think there's a little bit of merit to that. Uh, part of the reason why we say that uh, World War II started in like 1939 is because of Anglo-centrism and you know Britain dominates dominated the world at that point. Um, so, but I mean, I, I think personally, I would say that this is a good starting point to say, this is when the second world war happened whenever it started. 
Yeah. Um, but I, I, I digress. So they invaded Manchuria. And thing is, obviously, the Chinese, they had been they had been fighting a civil war essentially for about 50 years or so at this point. So their military is not at all advanced. Uh, even during the first Sino-Japanese War, uh, the Japanese exerted huge technological prowess over the Chinese during that war, and it was a complete rout. Um, so basically... Uh, so, okay, the Japanese, they went into uh, Manchuria, they landed on the beaches of Shanghai, and so on and so forth, uh, and so, basically, it was a lot similar to the first uh, Sino-Japanese War, that is, a lot of cases, this was just... Um, it was a lot of times it was just a complete route. Uh, like I said, they not only were not technologically capable of exerting a lot of force against the Japanese, but also they were extremely weak. And be, be, because there was, they've been undergoing a, a essential civil war for about 50 years. Um, and so they were just absolutely getting uh, whopped. Like, they are getting whooped, whopped all over the place. Uh, one of the first major battles of the war was the Battle of Shanghai. And so, this was one of the ma first major battles of the war fought between the, uh, the Kuomintang, the National Revolutionary Army, uh, and the uh, Japanese Empire. And it was to, to show you the vast scale of this battle. This started on August 13th and it ended on November 26th. November 26th. Uh, the Chinese, they had about 700,000 troops compared to uh, Japan's about 300,000 troops. And so it overall, like more than a million soldiers were involved in this battle. It was a humongous battle. Um, How many yeah. were involved in like D-Day? Uh, I mean, I'm not sure about that, but it is definitely like on that scale. Yeah. Uh, that's what I'm saying. Like, that's crazy. Yeah, it is. Um, a million people is a lot of folks. So essentially, you know, at the at the first, a lot of the battle was defined by um, house to house fighting. Uh, it was it's it was pretty much a very early cur uh, precursor to uh, what we consider urban warfare nowadays. Uh, a lot of people uh, consider the Battle of Shanghai to be essentially a, a Chinese Stalingrad, which I don't know if you know about the Battle of Stalingrad, but that was also a very bloody battle. 
that was fought, you know, as the uh, Germans called it, uh, essentially like a war of rats, where people were literally like fighting in sewers, fighting in corridors. You would be, you could be sleeping in one room, go into another room, and you would see an enemy, and you'd have to like stab them to death or whatever. You know, very, very brutal, very bloody fighting. I um, mean, this is on a pretty similar scale. Eventually, at the end of it, at the end of it all, um, 187,000 uh, Chinese soldiers died compared to the Japanese, about 59,000. Yeah. So, so basically, uh, the Chinese lost about four times to the level of troops and um where did the battle take place again at uh, shanghai like like on it like straight up yeah like uh, like in the city of shanghai that's crazy so yeah um the, the that battle was very much like a precursor it was one of the defining moments of the imperial japanese navy uh and in the army obviously yeah um but eventually at the end of it all of course uh as i've uh foreshadowed the japanese were able to uh capture shanghai and inflict huge losses upon the japanese so right after this is probably one of the highlights of the war Thank you. um and if you thought that the Battle of Shanghai was bad, uh, you have not seen nothing on the Battle of Nanjing, which mm -hmm. I'm just, I guess I'll just go ahead and tell you, uh, you know what, you know what this next battle is called? What? The Rape of Nanjing. Oh, man. They literally, I mean, like, literally, they called it, like, a rape. That's how bad that, you know, this was. So... After the Battle of Shanghai, the Japanese forces advanced towards the city of Nanjing, which was the capital city of the Kuomintang, uh, mm. the the uh, the Chinese nationalists. So the the actual battle in and of itself was not really that big. It, it was not really like on the scale of like the battle of Shanghai, they were able to, um, uh, they, uh, the leader, uh, Chiang Kai-shek, uh, he essentially, uh, decided that the city of Nanjing was not necessarily a, of great strategic importance, mm -hmm. uh, and decided to use their forces and defend other places. And so, after a very uh, short and decisive battle, it only lasted for about two weeks. Um, like, like just to tell you how how uh, small this was, the Japanese they only lost about two thousand soldiers. <laughs> right? They they only lost about two thousand soldiers. But what came afterwards is the the main reason why this is uh, very noteworthy um so basically after the japanese had claimed 
uh, Nanjing and had secured it. Um, now to note, with pretty much every empire, every time an empire takes over a piece of territory, mm -hmm. uh, the people who live in that territory, it pretty much never goes well for them. Uh, and this is a very notable uh, uh, example of that. So here's just to show you some of the things that the Japanese did to the residents of the city of Nanjing. They literally would hold contests to see how many people you could kill using a sword. <laughs> like they they would literally hold a contest to see like could you kill a hundred people with a sword? Um, <laughs> and thing is if you would think that the people, you know, people in Japan would just sort of like try to ignore this because that sounds terrible. No, 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 no. Major newspapers covered these like contests. Football. Like literal football. Yeah, they literally covered it as football. Like, I'm not even joking. They covered it like it was sports. Um, not only that, uh, gigantic, just astronomical astronomical rates of rape oh, um so it, about like 200,000 to 250,000 women uh and that's not excluding um children and old people oh man uh yeah all of them raped <laughs> uh like oh my jesus god um, a lot of it was a lot of it was kind of in the same vein of the uh, killing people with a sword contest it was a, a lot of it was a bit of a game for these people yeah. uh, for the Japanese uh, and also when it uh, of course you know that I mean that's where the term you know the rape of Nanjing comes from. Yeah. Uh, but that's I mean it's also called the Nanjing massacre, and that's because uh, between about six hundred uh, sixty thousand to a hundred thousand people were uh, systemically massacred by the Japanese after the capture of the city. Uh, I, I mean Holocaust style, uh, like they uh, dig force people to dig their graves and shoot them into the graves that they've dug. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, have large uh, piles of bodies and then burn them or uh, bury them in massive, you know, mass graves. Uh, most uh, scholars consider what happened in Nanjing to be a genocide. And I think that it is 100% uh, a accurate description of the rape of Nanjing. Uh, the, I mean, it was so massive. Uh, oh yeah, not to mention the, the figure that I estimated of uh, 60,000 to 100,000 people being massacred, that's yeah. actually a conservative figure. Um, sure. The uh, Chinese uh, Nanjing War Crimes Tribunal uh, estimates the total uh, dead to be somewhere around 300,000 people dead. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that, I mean, that's determined by the Chinese government. And of course, you know, China is led by an authoritarian government and they don't like Japan very much. So it's, you, you have to be a little bit more skeptical of those numbers, but those numbers are also backed by a lot of uh, scholarly sources. Um, and considering they were, they were willing to kill a certain amount of people, uh, I would not necessarily be surprised that they would uh, go towards some of the more higher figures. And so, yeah, the what happens in uh, Nanjing basically soils uh, uh, Chinese and Japanese relations even to this day. Like, there's this is a large this is a large reason why uh, Chinese and Japanese uh, people do not like each other, and it's yeah, pretty much just too. from this one uh, event. I would be very angry if I were. <laughs> oh, I mean, yeah, definitely. I mean, I guess you could say that that's sort of a testament towards, uh, I, I guess you could say America, because, um, you know, about 2,000 people died in 9-11. Not to yeah. say that 9-11 was at all a small event. It was a massive conflict and it was a massive tragedy. Yeah. But we still talk about it to this day, and we, you know, we constantly say never forget, um, and that we'll never forget the terrorists that did this. Yeah. But thing is, that was just two thousand people. This was a ridiculous amount. Three hundred thousand people systemically massacred. Not only, not only that, but like the absolute barbaric and cruel. Uh, games that they would literally play with people's lives and the massive amounts of rape that occurred. So, yeah. I mean, some of the rage is definitely justified. True. But, yeah. So, so w- with both of those battles, um, they were able to capture a very substantial amount of territory uh, they pretty much conquered all of Manchuria. Mm-hmm. And so... Uh, yeah, so... One of the uh, countries... One of the things that we have to talk about here is the uh, state of Manchuko. Yeah. Uh, basically, so it, it was called the, in the actual official name is the Empire of Manchuria. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it is a, you know, a puppet state. Like, you know what a puppet state is? It's basically where a country invades another country and they establish a government that's supposed to look sovereign, but it's actually not. It's controlled by the comp- the, by the country that I just invaded it. Oh, dang. Um, so, yeah, I mean, just to clarify that for anybody in the audience um but yeah and so in order for it's the empire of manchuria uh that was the puppet state that the japanese had established after this massive growth of territory during the invasion of manchuria um 
So at this point, it was basically sort of a stalemate. And this is about 1938. So in 1938, obviously, if you know about, I don't know, the, the, the Second World War, it starts to kick off around this time. And uh, all over the world, you know, countries go up in flames. One country invades another. The Nazis, they get kind of, uh, they get funky with it over in France and uh, Czechoslovakia and Poland, so on and so forth. Um, and this is pretty much a bit of a stalemate at this point until about 1939, uh, where, and the Battle of Sui Jean Zaoyang, the Japanese were actually defeated by the uh, nationalists. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I for- also forgot to mention, around this point was... Uh, so the pre the prior civil war that had been fought um, was uh, a bit between the nationalists and the communists who had been allied previously during the reunification of China. However, whenever the Japanese invaded Manchuria, the communists and the nationalists they decided to mend old wounds and form a new coalition which previously they had called it the united front so they decided to call this new coalition the second united front uh and that's and that's important to mention here so um with that uh with the ally you know with the added forces of the china with the communists uh, China was pretty much unified, with the exception of a few warlords that had been left over from the warlord era, uh, no, uh, notably uh, Zhang Zuolin, um, uh, the Japanese. Uh, the the Japanese they faced a Chinese counterattack, and and around this point, the Japanese they would start to be involved in other countries uh uh, japan they uh they got into a little bit of a scuffle with the soviets at the battle of uh, kalangol where they were just absolutely bodied um by the russians uh and that that comes into uh that comes into importance later but so at the at the battle of uh the Battle of Sui uh, Zhan uh, Zhaoyang. It's also called the Battle of Sui Zhao. Uh, hold on, hold on a second. Um, I'm gonna edit this out. Okay, so. <clears throat> So around the time of 1939, the the Chinese they had been uh, re- recuperating from the massive, I guess you could say, blitz of the Japanese. Also, of course, the events at uh, Nanjing. So after a little, after uh, a bit of planning, 
the nationalists they decided to attack with about 220,000 troops compared to Japan's uh, 113,000 troops that were stayed that were stationed in uh, in in this territory, and so. Uh, they were they were able to gain back a large portion of their territory. Yeah. Um. No, of course, not all of Manchuria. That would come later, but they were. I mean, that was a huge um, moral uh, morale victory for the jet for uh, the Chinese. Um. It, but still, this uh sta this stage of uh, stalemate still um, it, it's still there there's not really a whole lot of progress on either side um, that sucks yeah so a, a base so basically uh, the Chinese they start implementing forms of uh, guerrilla warfare which the uh, communists as I said earlier were already pretty good at um the oh yeah and let me just note the nationalists and the communists still did not like each other they just did not want to be totally dominated by the japanese um but thing is they were still able to sort of keep themselves from fighting each other until uh until near the end yeah and so so like are all these events like leading up to like world war ii uh yeah i mean they're occurring around the same time uh yeah. some of the later aspects of the uh a lot of the major events of the war they're happening in the later periods around like 1941 which of course the japanese they bombed us uh december 7th and yeah. that would be the start of the United States being involved, uh, but I will note uh, a lot of China, a lot of Chinese people in America, plus also like just um, uh, Americans who did who were not uh, of Chinese descent. Um, a lot of people were still uh, uh, very much opposed to the actions of the Japanese. They were considered uh, a, a lot like warmongers, which they were more warmongers. They were an mm -hmm. empire. Um, and we assist them a lot. Uh, very infamously, we sent over some pilots of the uh, Army Air Corps, which would later become the Air Force. They were called the Flying Tigers. Uh, they would help out the Chinese in fighting off uh, the Japanese air force and sort of not necessarily gaining air superiority but very much uh, helping in that aspect mm -hmm. um, also of course since the japanese and the uh russians the soviets very much not like each other uh the uh the soviets they help out a lot uh mostly they help out the communist party mm -hmm. And so this war would keep on going on 
for a little while. Uh, and then eventually the big war starts and all of a sudden there's a big old country that is involved, AKA, you know, the United States. Yeah. Um, whenever we enter the war, uh, you know, we had started to, uh, start, you know, re, uh, claiming territories that were previously held by, uh, Japan. Yeah. And part of that was, uh, islands around China, although we would not invade China itself, that would be left up to the Soviets. Um, and so eventually, uh, Japanese, a Japanese occupation would end with the, with the, with the, uh, with the surrender of Japan. Uh, yeah. they would, uh, relinquish all their territories within China and, you would think that this event, you know, this uh, tragedy would unite China. Uh, no, that's not going to be the case, which that's what we will discuss in the next episode. Thank you. So, yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts? A lot of people oh. call this uh, the Asian Holocaust. Uh, and I yeah. think that's pretty accurate. Um, it was definitely, you know, a huge uh a, a, a huge atrocity a huge tragedy yeah um definitely oh man i think um i mean my thoughts about it are uh i mean as simple as uh the fact that i am ignorant to the whole situation is is frightening you know yeah, that, that is one of the big things is that um, the all the history that we're taught as Americans is very Eurocentric. We don't yeah. really care about conflicts that go on in places outside of Europe. Yeah. And the, I mean, really bad. There's know. all I mean, there's also the fact granted that uh, China was basically, I, I guess you could say, People would look at China in the same way that people look at uh, Syria nowadays or even like Somalia as mm -hmm. just sort of like this um, landscape of nothing but warlords and yeah. so on and so forth. Uh, but still, the fact that people were not people nowadays do not really know about things like the Nanjing, the Nanjing massacre or mm -hmm. the uh, absolute brutality at the Battle of Shanghai, it's. Yeah, it's I mean, very much a failure of the American educational system. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, um, I mean, that's some, that, that's, that's one thing that I've been thinking throughout this whole talk, me and you having this conversation is why have I never been taught this? You know, like you say, people say that history is not to be repeated or whatever, and say all these, uh, you know, you got to know history to not repeat it, but how are you going to like choose what bits and pieces to teach me of history? You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so, yeah. 
uh, I think this was a pretty good talk. Yeah, it was good. I, I think we got pretty far. All right. Well, thank you for coming on and uh, tune in next time for the next episode of Serve the People's Story, the scuffed podcast about the Chinese Civil War. Thank you. See you guys.